I often think that long-term care is cursed by history, that history was the bad fairy at the christening, and that residential care for the elderly remains a shameful thing. Families and friends don't feel good about having people they care about in long-term care. And these remain second-rate institutions, staffed by people that are considered not quite as good as the health professionals that you might encounter in a hospital. The population of long-term care is also considered less important. It's a second-rate population of people that are regarded as no longer useful. We transformed a nursing home sector into being a very highly medicalized sector for people who are increasingly frail, increasingly sick, and increasingly designed for freeing up hospital beds. We hadn't been building a lot of new hospital beds, in fact, not enough to keep up with the growth and demand for uh, the population growth. We weren't hiring trained staff with nursing skills and caregiving skills to provide the level of full-time medical care that was going to be necessary to really make these safe places for people to live. And I, I think it does, it does highlight the fundamental issue in institutional care, the conflict or the tension between the institutional support and protection of very vulnerable people and helping them to, um, with the care, with their activities of daily living. But on the other hand, being able to live a meaningful life and have a good quality of life. There is a definite tension there. Quite often, an institution like any organization will do things to make sure that things run in an efficient way from the organizational's perspective. These institutions that come out of Confederation have long done harm to disabled populations, have long isolated disabled populations, and so much has happened behind those closed doors. There's no space in our you know, public histories that contend with that meaningfully. This is episode two of COVID in the House of Old. The past is present in long-term care. Few Canadians appreciate how the colonial heritage of the English workhouse imposes itself on today's elder care residents. It's almost like a haunting. In the 19th century, these huge brick institutions were all over Britain, places for people who were desperately poor, who couldn't work in the factories of the Industrial Revolution because they were sick or disabled. And of course, this included the frail elderly who could not be cared for by family. British colonizers brought the harsh, punitive workhouse model to Canada, where it rests aside insane asylums, prisons, reformatories for wayward youth, and residential schools, all institutions of oppression and control. Then the workhouse evolved into the old age home and eventually became a place for the frail, sick elderly. So that should be nice in a Canadian way. But, but, no, this story doesn't have a happy ending. But somehow, the same punitive, power over, loss of personhood peace continues in residential care for Canada's elderly. It runs right through the 20th century. 
zips into the millennium and heads into the pandemic. And then it turns deadly. The person who understands this story probably best in Canada is historian Jim Struthers. Jim has written some of the best books out there about the history of poverty in the state. And he's studied today's long-term care facilities across Canada, the U.S., and in Northern Europe. Jim, what does the Victorian workhouse that Charles Dickens wrote about have to do with today's long-term care institution? Sure. You're right, Megan, that the origins of uh, long-term care, residential care, uh, are rooted deeply in the legacy, the historical legacy, of the British poor laws and the creation of poor houses. And they didn't start out as old age homes. They started out as residential incarceration of an indigent, poor, poverty-stricken population to get aid to enter an institution. You had to be absolutely destitute. You had to be, in fact, homeless. You had to have no income. And you had to be willing to give up your right to liberty, to freedom. Uh, it was a form of incarceration. Similar to, most similar to jail. But you might say it's a form of being jailed for being vagrant or for being poor. And there were always elderly poor people in these places, right? Correct. Because initially, uh, one condition of poverty was old age. The physical inability to do factory work, to do agricultural work. Injury. Uh, loss of cognitive ability. Um, psychological breakdown. A couple of years ago, I had this aha moment, a realization that these workhouses were clearly part of a larger colonial project. So I asked Jen Rinaldi, a socio-legal scholar who looks at disability and institutions, to join me and provide her thoughts. Jen, you're a scholar who's looked closely at Huronia, the so-called hospital or school for disabled children in Orillia, Ontario. What do you think? I think institutional histories are, you're right to point this out, like deeply entangled with Canada's like settler colonial and, and deeply violent historical systems. The, you know, institutional survivors I've dealt with are predominantly white. Um, Heronia's uh, like demographic record tends to be white, but that is because we've built different kinds of institutional systems historically that fell along racial lines. Racialized diasporic communities saw their children like taken from them uh, through different kinds of mechanisms, like carceral ones. Uh, and you know, residential schools were built to like educate and indoctrinate uh, like non-white indigenous bodies. We see institutional histories like fit within Canada's colonial narrative. And um, yeah, Canada's not the nice guys. Like we have a, a long-standing history of doing great violence to other populations uh, in, the, in the service of a colonial state. So Jim, the workhouse started in Britain and then Britain colonized Canada and brought its institutions of social control with it. The workhouse in Ontario was called the House of Industry and Refuge, so, of course, making the poor work. But tell us how the workhouse became the old age home, but not a place where an elderly person could sit comfortably in their rocking chair and wait for a good dinner. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I got interested in aging because of my earlier work studying the origins of responses to unemployment and poverty. Gradually what happened over the course of the 19th century was other mechanisms 
began to evolve asylums for people with uh, mental disabilities, orphanages for children uh, without parents. And so they were not created as old age homes. They became, by default, the residual category of population became the elderly, who had no other means of support, nowhere else to go, no one else to look after them. And the criteria for being old and being in an old age home was that you did not have a family member who was willing to take you in. It's so interesting, isn't it, that even though the population then changes in these places, the poor law ethos, that nobody gets something for nothing, right? That punitive attitude persists. Well, it's rooted in the idea of shame as a powerful motivator for creating an economic incentive to be independent. It's all about shame. It's all about punishment. And this is also a kind of a gendered shame, too, because women were considered to be the principal caregivers of men and of children. So uh, it's considered to be a shame on, on a gendered shame on women if they can't provide care to their parents or to their spouses. And that reality is another legacy of this uh, institution. A story I found in the Victoria City archives from the 1920s really stuck with me. There was a facility kind of midway between a boarding house and a small private hospital where the city would farm out their Indigenous poor, their elderly people. And the residents there were clothed in items from the local undertakers. So they were actually given clothes of dead people, which is a very Dickinsonian workhouse piece for me. My conversation with Jim Struthers makes it clear that the two of us are charter members of the exclusive, like extremely exclusive, Canadian Club of Poor Law Geeks. We see remnants of the poor law littered across our social and health policy landscape. Imagine my surprise when I discovered that Andrew Sixsmith was another member of the club. Now, Andrew is a career gerontologist, and if you look at his profile on the Simon Fraser University website, you'll see an impressive array of research on technology, active aging, and health across the lifespan. But in fact, Andrew has a fascinating personal connection to English poor law institutions and some very interesting thoughts on the topic. Andrew, when we had coffee a few weeks ago, I was totally delighted to learn that you also have a passion for the poor law. We're a very small club, you know. Canadians are not so into the workhouse and the poor law. Yeah, just to to follow up on that, I was born in a hospital in England, in the north of England, called Rossendale General Hospital. Okay. And the Rossendale General Hospital started its life as a workhouse. These workhouses were a physical manifestation of the moral views at the time in Victorian England that poor people were poor because it was their own fault and that they didn't deserve any help and support. And that if we were going to provide them any help and support, it should be A, as little cost as possible, and B, it should be punitive so that people don't want to go into it, right? My grandfather died in that place in what 
looked to me as if it was something straight out of a Charles Dickens horror story about what it was like to live in a workhouse. And that was in 1980 when he died, 40 years ago, right? Uh, but these, these things still persisted. The concept of institutional care obviously is still with us. I'm not saying that the long-term residential care homes look like a workhouse anymore. They don't look like workhouses. Living in an institutional environment has a dynamic and a regime which inevitably leads in itself to the undermining of independence. Once you set foot as a resident in an institution, the process of institutionalization basically takes away your independence. People became very, very aware of that very, very quickly. You know, your, your life is not your own to lead anymore. Things are often done for you, but you could do them yourselves. But quite often it's easier for the care providers to do it for you. You kind of go into this cycle of increasing uh, passivity in a place like that. Does this all make sense to you? It totally makes sense to me. You know, Irving Goffman, bless his soul, Canadian soul, would have had something to say about the use of antipsychotics in long-term care. Foucault certainly would. And antipsychotics are used widely and their use increased during the pandemic. 7%, I think, in residential care facilities. Jim, you've written about the way in which old age pensions transforms the possibilities for low-income seniors when they come in in the late 1920s. And I've certainly seen that in my own research on single aging men in BC. But what happens to Canada's old age homes after the Second World War, when the notion of social citizenship, that right to a good life, really comes to the forefront of health and social policy? That's correct. So various things come along in the 1920s and beyond, means-tested old-age pensions for people 70 and older, that create a new idea of rights, of citizenship, that flow out of World War II itself, the experience of fighting and winning the war for democracy, the war against authoritarianism and fascism, uh, elevating the concept of citizenships and what citizens are owed simply by virtue of their own contributions to the state not necessarily only in the marketplace or in the economy, but just, you know, uh, raising children, fighting for, for democracy, providing the children themselves with a, you know, a, a, some sort of basic income. And out of that comes the demand for rethinking uh, what's owed to the elderly. One way in which the seniors are citizens concept manifested itself was in a wave of research on the elderly, which began in the UK and then got the new disciplinary label of gerontology as it took hold in the United States, Canada, and other countries of the global north. So out of that emerges Ontario's, and, and Ontario is not the only province, but in Ontario it becomes the uh, 1947 Ontario Homes for the Aged Act. And this is the first piece of legislation that specifically is targeted to providing tax-supported institutional accommodation for people who are old and need institutional care. But it's not just because they're totally incapacitated. Uh, initially, the homes for the aged were considered to be on the model, as the government of the time said, 
uh, like hotels, resorts, in a sense. That was the language they used. Obviously, they weren't that. But they were targeted at a middle-class population. Poverty was not the only criteria for being admitted to a new home for the aged. The criteria was inability to care for oneself or the need for additional supports in care. So middle class, any individual uh, who was not able to live independently should be entitled to support in a government-run or government-subsidized, it was the case of subsidizing a, a Catholic home or a Jewish home. And the one thing that really made this possible was universal old-age pensions. The new $40 a month pension was that you were 70 years of age and older had lived at least 20 years of your life in Canada. And reaching in the magic age of 70, which a lot of people didn't in 1950, gets you a $40 a month pension. That helps provide a lot of support for people to maintain life in their own homes if they, if they want to, and most people did. That went a long way in 1950, 51, 52. So the economic crisis is, is the economic causes of going into a long-term care or an old-age home get replaced by two other causes. The first is uh, inability to care for yourself. Could be your widow, uh, could be your, you've got dementia. Women are going into the workforce after World War II in large and large numbers. So as, as the Globe and the Toronto Star and the government officials would point out, the daughters of the elderly were no longer available to provide care for their parents because they were working themselves. This is the baby boom generation, or they've got five or six kids themselves to look after, so they, they don't have enough room in the houses to be able to look after their parents. Yeah, and you know, what's interesting that I found through my research is that it's at this historical moment as well that you start to get articles about how elderly people are an unhealthy element in the family. To me, it's all part of the same package that the middle class family has got to be the nuclear family. So there's a, a discouragement of having grandma or grandpa live with you. The point here is homes are also built on a different ethic now. The new homes for the aged are focused on a pension-earning population. There's no shame in, and this is the big issue, there's no longer any shame in uh, applying to go to a home for the aged. They're specifically instructed to look like they're resorts. They're, they're often out in the suburbs. Often they're built on the former land uh, of where the poorhouse used to be in the farm country outside. Tear down the poorhouse and build a new modern, you know, single-story home for the aged with a lovely cafeteria and a tuck shop and a hair salon and a commons area for recreation and a garden and double rooms, usually not so much single rooms. So this sounds really good. And I really like, especially having gone through the lockdown and having to cut my own hair for like eight months. Um, I like the idea of the hair salon, but how do we get to the institution that Canadians got a strong look in at when so many of our elders were dying in them suddenly. So how do we get from this good thing to this not good enough thing? It's a very good question, uh, Megan. There's really two paths to that, because out of this sort of single model of the house of refuge or the poor house are two different streams. One is the one I just described, the transition, tear down the poor house and build a new suburban modern home for the aged that kind of looks like a, a resort or a motel or a, a friendly place to be. The second track, though, is the response to hospitals are getting overcrowded. 
there's an increasing demand for what would become universal hospital insurance, which is arrived through the Hospital Diagnostic Services Act of 1957. So hospitals begin pushing to find places for chronic care elderly, but they can't be discharged to these new modern homes for the aged because they're not designed to be medical facilities. They're not designed to provide chronic care. You don't want to be surrounded by really demented or uh, chronically incapacitated people. The city governments who are responsible for public care in hospitals enter into agreement with private boarding house owners, usually mom or pop operations who in the 20s or 30s are just running a boarding house for single men or single women. Now, they, with the arrival of old-age pensions, people getting $20 a month, now $40 a month. Now, cities are saying, hey, can you take in some of these people we're seeing as bed blockers out of our hospitals? They don't need doctors. They don't need nursing services, but they do need someone to look in on them every now and then. They need to be fed. They can't cook for themselves. You know, companionship. That's the second stream, and that's the one that really, I think, has more connection with where we are now with the for-profit private nursing home sector as it evolves from the 1950s onwards, ultimately forcing governments to get involved in more and more regulation. Ontario passes its first uh, nursing home inspection, licensing act in 1966. So it's not until the mid-1960s that the province is in the business of licensing and approving and then inspecting and subsidizing, uh, soon to be mostly for-profit. By 1973, when this private nursing home sector gets per diem funding through a section of Medicare in Ontario called the Extended Care Health Act. And for the next 30 years, they're on separate trains, tra- trails. they separate ministries, separate statutes, really separate models of care. But increasingly, for similar populations, when the NDP gets elected in 1993, unexpectedly, um, for a long time, they're debating eliminating private for-profit care altogether. But in the end, because of the recession, by the time they're facing election 1995, they simply merge the two sectors into one sector under the Ministry of Health. And we end up in Ontario with the most for-profit nursing home sector in Canada, by far. 60% of it now is for-profit. For the last three decades, prior to COVID-19, this was a crisis, you know, just waiting to happen to expose all the frailties, the gaps, the lack of planning, the misdirection. I guess this is what I'm trying to explain historically as an historian. This system did not evolve in any coherent, planned, integrated fashion. It evolved piecemeal, governed by different ministries at different times, dealing with different motivations, whether it's, you know, reducing shame and stigma or freeing up hospital beds or uh, creating for-profit opportunities for former rooming house operators, that this should ultimately become part of Medicare. We still haven't done that. And we've had now 2002 Hall Commission. Uh, we've had two major royal commissions that said long-term care should be part of any Medicare system. Haven't done that. So Jim's policy roadmap explains why many of Ontario's for-profit long-term care facilities crashed and burned in the pandemic. But listen to how Andrew Sixsmith links it back to the culture of institutions. Uh, Within gerontology, there's a very interesting um, concept around this. The sociologists of uh, bureaucracy will always argue about this, is that the main aim is to support the organisations as an organisation. And that in some ways, what is being provided is is almost secondary. I know that sounds a bit 
bit kind of weird. We can see that in the way that long-term care residential environments are, are, are organized. There's a very, very kind of management first ethos about it. They're very risk averse. We don't want to, we don't want to cause problems. So those are really dominant ideas within the world of residential care, right? The regimes that exist within an institutional environment, that's what, that's what we've got. To, I'm sure people in the long-term residential care environment don't like being called institutions, right? But we need to understand that they are. They are total institutions. They comprise the entire life of the residents in there. And also, the people who work there are also institutionalized. They're institutionalized in a way of working as much as the residents are institutionalized into a way of living. So these are, these are interconnected. You have to face that the nature of, a, of an institution has these quite negative aspects to them, which are, which are impossible to design out, I would say. Institutions are not going to vanish from the Canadian landscape. But I'm an optimist. I wonder, could you develop a sort of self-correct or self-criticism piece for people working in or running long-term care? Could you support an administrator of a long-term care facility in developing a critical analysis about what they were doing? Could these people find their way to understanding how power works? Developing an institutional critique? One of the first projects that I was ever involved in did a compare and contrast against what might be called a very, very traditional institutional environment versus a more person-centered institutional care environment. The, the differences were quite staggering, to be honest. So there are things that we can do within, within institution-based care that will improve things. But it does take a lot of investment and it does take a lot of training and it takes the right people being involved and giving them the right support uh, to provide person-centered care. I mean, I do, I wonder, like, how we're going to remember COVID. Um, and I think about it when, like, I can only watch, like, romantic comedies because I'm so broken right now like it is a it is a mass trauma that is ongoing and we do have a tendency to sidestep trauma because it like it hurts to process like it is it is an impossible thing to like touch and process sometimes oh yes I agree for settler Canadians to step away from our perception of being morally superior to Americans and say, yeah, we abandoned our elderly. Well, all those unmarked graves at residential schools have dislocated us from that narrative, and that's a healthy process. But we've got to look at the other settler colonial institutions, places like Huronia and the workhouse that morphs into the long-term care facility. These are colonial pieces all of them. And we just need to pull that out of the closet and have a good look at it and say, okay, time for some more re-education. That trauma is, is so impossible to touch, like, especially for people closer to it. It feels like that is a call to action for allies. I fell into Heronia work because, like, 
I can I can manage this stuff as someone who like isn't intellectually disabled. Like I can process and, and build platforms. We have responsibilities to deal with the impossibility of this tragedy uh, so that there is a public reckoning. So I'm glad you have an exhibit. I'm glad you're memorializing. When the pandemic hit, history, politics, and poor policy scripted the fate of Canada's elders living in long-term care, thwarting the efforts of administrators, workers, and the families that tried to protect them. Yet history is more malleable than we might think. It's about change, always, but it's also about choice. Difficult histories can be recognized, reconciled, and purposefully set aside. The history set out here is burdened, but it's our inheritance. Our responsibility is to take the lessons of the past and craft a different future for Canadian elder care. That was episode two of COVID in the House of Old, hosted by me, Megan Davies, and featuring the voices of Jim Struthers, Jen Rinaldi, and Andrew Sixsmith. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Cohen Hammond. It featured music by Cohen Hammond and Harold Camacho. This project would not be possible without the support of a Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellowship in the Humanities from Simon Fraser University. Stay tuned for more episodes.